Cinema Journal presents Acamedia. I'm Christine Becker. And I am Michael Kackman. You pause there. Like, you maybe forgot. Well, you know, sometimes you. (sighs) Questioning. It's getting to be that point. So here's the thing you know, after SEMS, like, SEMS is like right there in the middle of the spring semester. Mm -hmm. And that demands, you know, certain kinds of intellectual energies and. and, um, Right saps a certain amount of energy and then you come back and and like all of a sudden like the second half of the semester is looming and students are freaking out and there's another semester to plan and it's right. just a, it's a crazy time so in fact i did have to reflect for a minute like okay who am i we also have a circumstance coming back from SEMS is like winter isn't over. And here, at least in South Bend, Indiana. It was literally snowing two days ago. It was snowing two days ago. And now it's like 70. We're inside, obviously. Um, so we're not experiencing it. But as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to go outside. Um, I will warn you to maybe not look at the forecast for Monday. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, because there's snow on the forecast. But And I thought this last one, I thought, all right, that's the last gaff. So that, that's it. But no. So 70 today, 36, I think, was the, the high mm-hmm. on Monday. So, But yeah, and that, I mean, literally, like, physiologically speaking, you come back and we haven't seen the sun in weeks and it's snowing and it's April, whatever. Um, it's That's hard. And it's really hard on the students. You know, coming in, I came in, um, I had to uh, substitute teach for my TA and went into her class Friday morning. And the, I almost wanted to take a picture of the students. They looked just so sad and forlorn. Broken. and Broken and flu-ridden, and it was, it was bad. So we need to wrap this puppy up. Yeah, we do. As soon as we can. We probably need to wrap this puppy up, too. We've been sort of <laughs> slow getting this thing out. Yeah. Here, so. Well, we did. We met at SEMS with the whole uh, Acomedia crew, which uh, we will post that picture on our website. We've already got it on our Facebook, but it was really nice, except for Todd. We didn't have Todd with us, but we had the rest of us. It was really great to catch up. And we met with the intent in mind, how can we get back on track regularly producing episodes? And so we have plans um, in mind for how to do that. We obviously haven't enacted them yet, but uh, we do have plans to get back on track and especially to invite more people to help us out and, and get things rolling on a more regular basis. So look for that coming forward. That's right. And also more invitations. Yes, exactly. And if you want to help, if you want to interview someone, if you have ideas, we actually did just uh, get an email from a grad student offering some really great ideas for interviews. So if you have ideas, if you have people you want to interview, if you have people you would suggest we pair up, please let us know. Maybe we could do some ads, you know, like, uh, you know, like, do, do you, you have, have a, a face, face for radio? radio? Come, Come join, join us, us at ACA Media. Wow. See, that's great. Yeah. That's, you, yeah. we've yeah, got, I un- think that's, I think, you know, it's always good to be complimentary to people that really makes them want to jump in and untapped potential there with you doing those those voiceovers that's exactly what's going to sell it okay i think that's going to work great we'll work on that so listen for that in our next episode we did also we teased in our last episode something we were actually able to to put together which this is one reason this episode took a little while um not because we have you know tons of content but because it took a lot of of time to get together the offerings for this next next segment if you recall in the last episode we said we wanted to do a segment on teaching in trump times and solicit submissions from listeners about their challenges in the classroom um we got one uh, submission from that call um which i think many people are hesitant in general to submit content i think 
you know, there's, there's certain challenges and time and all that kind of stuff. But with this topic, I think it's such a sensitive topic and people are concerned about what could be the reactions to what they say mm -hmm. about teaching in Trump time. So we realized it needed the personal touch of, of asking people at SCMS um, and, and kind of personally following up with people. And that successfully garnered us three more segments. And so uh, we've got four submissions here, all of which I think are really interesting, provocative, um, informative in, in various ways. I think it'll be nice to listen to that, both in terms of sort of some concrete things that, that people are doing and sort of trying to, trying to think about our, our current media landscape, but also to get a sense for how it is that people are, are in a sense, having to reconceive of themselves as teachers, as intellectuals, and as observers of of our of our uh, cultural processes, yeah. So I think we'll get a conversation started with that segment, and, and hopefully we can do more about it along the way. Um, we also have a second segment in this episode. We're going to draw again from the SCMS Field Notes series, and here uh, we will have a an excerpt of an interview with Hamid Nafisi, which I'm really excited about. There's some really great stuff in there. All right. So shall we start with the. Uh yeah, and so we're we've got in Trump times. yeah we've got four segments here. We let the speakers decide if they wanted to give their names or not. So we're just you know we're not going to introduce anybody. We're just going to present here are four different perspectives on teaching in the Trump era. Hi, my name is Diana. I teach at a um, a state school in the Midwest. Uh, it's an R, R1 research facility, and I'm an instructor uh, jointly appointed in both ethnic studies and women's and gender studies, and I just want to um, uh, share with you something a student wrote to me before the beginning of the semester um, about how he was planning to engage with the material in my um, a class that fulfills a requirement uh, called Cultural Pluralism in the U.S. Uh, in that class, we look at lots of um, ways different marginalized communities within the U.S. have um, responded to uh, discrimination based on race or ethnicity, gender, sexuality, things like that. And here's what this student sent me the, uh, a few days before class was about to start. I don't fully agree with some of the opinions that are presented in the materials, but because these are opinions, mine are the authors, there is not a true right or wrong. All opinions are or data is biased. It doesn't matter if you watch MSNBC or Fox News, everyone has bias on what information is provided or how it is provided. I will listen to anyone regarding their opinion or feelings on any issue, like you said in your introduction, that's what college is all about. As a very non-traditional student, my life experiences will be very different from others and that is okay. As a 46-year-old conservative white male from Ohio who works as a career firefighter and is, and is a current member of the military, I will probably provide a different perspective than a typical student. I didn't sign up for this class to challenge the curriculum, but rather because it, because it is required for my degree. 
So that's what this student wrote. And then uh, for the next six weeks, uh, proceeded to resist any type of um, engagement with the material, uh, especially in terms of race. When we got to um, topics concerning class and socioeconomic status, he was absolutely on board because he's uh, been a working class person his entire life. In terms of issues about race, though, he dug his heels in and would not accept there is that that racism still exists or that there's any sort of institutionalized uh, racist ideology within lots of different uh, institutions within the U.S. Um, I repeatedly told the student that, uh, you know, he should, just because he didn't agree with the material didn't mean that, you know, he didn't have to read it or have to engage with it. Um, at the conclusion of the semester, the student got a B that he felt he didn't deserve and uh, threatened to write a letter about me to the Board of Regents and um, continued with a very sort of long, drawn-out, uh, back-and-forth uh, insistence that he, d he deserved an A. Um, so that was just one instance I had. Um, last summer. There were two other instances when a couple of young men taking um, a few more of my classes uh, accused me of being anti-white. Um, one, one class period where we were looking at white nationalists who had demonstrated and were using coded language about um, 88, uh, standing for Adolf Hitler, and we were watching footage of white nationalist and neo-Nazi rallies. Uh, after that particular class, a student stayed after to uh, basically scream at me and ask me why I hated white people. Um, and then there was another young man who, uh, it was an online class. Um, he sent me an email telling me he was coming to find me and let, and uh, settle the disagreement we were having. That's his language. Um, because I had graded an essay that he had written where he basically denied <laughs> that racism still exists, that sexism still exists. And he said he was coming to my office to find me, which terrified me, quite frankly. So these are happening more and more within the institution um, uh, that where, where I teach. Um, and it, apparently it's happening more and more to my colleagues as well. Which you might think, um, and in, in several, there have been several occasions where I become frightened and think like maybe I should tone some of my material down. Um, but I, so far I haven't done that, and I have actually uh, decided to really, really, really um, make no bones about, you know, the fact that we have to talk about. Um, systemic inequality and um, this, the ways that racism and white supremacy are evident in uh, our country in lots of different ways. Um, so that's my story. And thanks, Academia, for uh, being here to let me share my story with you. I don't necessarily like feel like I need to sort of censor myself. Uh, I have enough anxiety to already make me feel like I need to do that. Um, I, I, I like well, the one the weird thing that I that I have sort of noticed in the past like four years in switching from a private university to a public university when I started um, my doctoral graduate career um, was that there seems to be a, a greater sensitivity about the sort of politics of our students and the sort of sensitivity that they have, um, and, and it's just something that's like very been strange 
to me to hear a lot of these conversations, like both culturally and like sort of offhand, like in when we're sort of taught uh, to to teach uh, by our department, they're very careful to think about how we're being sensitive to student needs, student politics, and it's it's that's not really been my experience. I think um, I mean you know I, I I teach in Southern California, so it's a it's a it's a fairly uh, liberal setting. Students probably have pretty consistent beliefs with like a lot of the faculty, um, but I haven't, I, I, you know, in my experience I've, I've noticed that students are very quite receptive. They're reading the same news sources that we're reading, the same social media communities, and that they're sort of very much networked into the same kind of sensitive, sensitivities that we have um, as, you know, academic professionals. So I, I guess like I've not necessarily worried that I've, I've had to be objective like in a way that like I'm going to bend over backwards but I you know I am sensitive that there's probably a lot of silence in the room and that creates a sort of lingering question about when you teach is you know how many students are just sort of turned off uh, because they, they sort of view you as suspect or ideological and I and I don't think that's a wrong impression for them to have I you know I I don't want to go too into detail about like you know the problems that we might have with our own sort of forms of politics, but that is a sort of difficulty. Is like when people aren't talking, what does that mean, and does that sort of earmark uh, a, a sort of sensitivity against us or, or whatnot? And so that's been, I guess, the only like question that I've had is like you know I have students who are like amazingly generous in the conversations that they're willing to have. I mean specifically like you know they're willing to talk about police brutality probably more than you know some of like my like non-student peers like a few years ahead of me like so yeah I don't know they like they have really risen to the challenge of like the Trump age but it's often the people who are silent who make me sort of worried because I don't I don't know how they're engaging with the material or if they're even willing to engage with the material and so you know conversations in class are I, I don't think are the issue I think it's what's not being said which probably is the issue and that probably also uh, reflects you know our own sort of institutional issues as professionals and like what we're willing and not willing to say when it comes to our own academic work. I'm Kyle Rather. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Texas at Austin. In the fall of 2016, I was teaching our Intro to Media Theories course. We talk about concepts like ideology, hegemony, and representation to about 60 mostly freshmen. For some, learning to think so critically about the media is hard. And sometimes I heard them say, why complicate and overanalyze movies and TV? Why not just enjoy them for what they are? And to that, I would try to explain how the things that we watch and who makes them often shape the way we see the world. So a few weeks into the course, we had our first exam. One student handed me his paper, and instead of the usual name and date at the top, he'd scribbled a paragraph. It said, he didn't like the class. He felt the material in my lectures were overly critical, and that the course too often blamed men for the problems in media. I was pretty shocked. This note seemed frantic, scared, and maybe a little desperate, and I didn't know what to do. I went to my advisor and our graduate advisor. I explained the situation and showed them the note. We talked, and they calmed my nerves. This wasn't totally uncommon, and as a tallish, stockyish white man, I wasn't the usual target of the pushback that women, people of color, and other marginalized folks too often receive. Finally, they said, why don't you try to talk to him? So I set up a meeting the next day with a student. I offered to buy him a cup of coffee, and we met at a crowded coffee shop near campus. I asked him how his semester was going. He said, okay. I asked him how he felt about the class. He wasn't really a fan. And about himself. 
He'd grown up in a conservative and religious house. He'd recently moved to Austin, and it was a strange, big, new city. So I told him how I'd grown up in southern, mostly rural, deeply conservative Mississippi. That many of my family and friends growing up would undoubtedly have felt the same confusion that he did. I listened to him and his feelings about the class, and I really tried to connect his concerns about the course to the ways that thinking about media helps us wrap our heads around the complicated and turbulent world that we see. After finishing our cups, we shook hands, and many of my deepest fears, at least, were abated. I think it's probably asking too much to think that I changed his mind and made him totally understand and love all of the material. He's a non-major, and my guess is this is his only media class. Maybe trying to make that personal connection to Bridges' assumptions about me and mine about him is a step towards finding understanding and maybe a little peace. I was worried about meeting this guy, and ultimately I think the suggestion to do so was the right thing. It broke that tension in a time when fear and resentment were running high, and hopefully to do that, built a little trust, and maybe from that, hopefully some reconciliation. Hi, ACA Media friends. This is Brandy Monk-Payton, and I'm an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. I'm constantly thinking about the intersections of pedagogy, higher education, and the politics of identity. I began to think more critically about what we refer to as campus climate a few years ago as protests ignited at colleges and universities all around the country concerning issues of racial justice. In response, schools have created initiatives that are focused on diversity, initiatives resulting in varying degrees of success. But in the past year and a half, how we navigate campus climate has become even more pressing with the election of Donald Trump and the increasing rise of white supremacy, xenophobia, homophobia, among other forms of hate, and frustrating debates around free speech. We are indeed teaching and students are learning in a difficult time. For the first time, I was really confronted with just how difficult a time when watching an episode of All in the Family in a U.S. TV history course no longer seemed to be a generative viewing experience for my students. I think for the most part, students understood the importance of the classic sitcom, but Archie Bunker's continued iconic status as a beloved bigot seemed untenable for them as I learned in their response papers. This became a site of tension and discomfort in discussion. Similar moments have occurred in other popular media courses that I have taught, especially with material confronting the complexities of race, gender, class, and sexuality. In the classroom at the outset, I introduce to students what I call the terrain of trust. I developed the notion of the terrain of trust as a way to move beyond the idea of the classroom as a safe space and to reflect more broadly on campus climate and the current era. While safe space has a historically important and material legacy that we should not forget, it has also been co-opted in the service of discounting student grievances to reinforce the discourse of triggering and coddling in higher ed. Rhetorically, I use the terrain of trust to disentangle from such discourse. As an intervention into safe space, the terrain of trust refers to how we relate to each other in structurally inhospitable environments. As a teaching philosophy, it affirms the collective journey that we are on to engage with texts, media objects, and each other, even if it is rocky. Trust is earned, and so the terrain of trust must be actively cultivated in good faith. 
In this way, it emphasizes an atmosphere that recognizes individual intentions at the same time that it demands collective accountability. I discuss all of this with students openly and they respond well. They too intuitively sense that we need to create a different kind of contract in the classroom and elsewhere. I've even had a student come to discuss it more with me in order to mobilize the idea in her campus activist circles. So my advice is to use the terrain of trust in your teaching, if it's helpful, as a model for ethical classroom engagement. Expand on it, transform it based on your own pedagogical needs. I hope it can also enhance your perspective working in higher education. We're all in this together. All right, some really interesting stuff there and, and some, you know, troubling aspects of what we're having to deal with, some helpful suggestions. I really appreciated, you know, Kyle telling us his story of how he dealt with the situation or um, the terrain of trust idea I think is really interesting. I think one particular challenge I've had along the way from the day after I taught the election to ongoing now, I just taught ideological analysis and race in my intro to film and TV class is uncertainty. The one um, offering that mentioned the notion of silence in the classroom and, and not being sure if someone's not speaking up, um, not being certain what they're thinking. And part of teaching is going in and being prepared. And you're never going to be prepared for anything. You're never as prepared as you, know, you want to be. But part of feeling a sense of comfort in teaching is feeling like you know, at least you have a, have a decent sense of how things are going to play out mm -hmm. and what you've got in the classroom. I think that for me has been the big challenge or a big challenge in this era is just feeling a sense of uncertainty in the classroom about what I'm, what could potentially happen, what I could potentially teach that's tied to Trump era topics. Yeah. I think one of the things that we're renegotiating broadly culturally is essentially the, the kind of normative ethic of community of mm -hmm. the path of like really the second half of the 20th century right you know we we have this understanding of what the civil rights movement was and what the women's movement did and and how we emerged from that with a set of norms about behavior that and and um kind of everyday cultural politics that that obviously not everybody agrees about and not everyone has the same experience of but that is taken as sort of a foundation for how we interact with one another and what kinds of um, expectations we have. And for some people that was a myth and mm -hmm. for some people it was an achieved ideal. And um, for most of us, it's kind of a mix of those things at different times. And that's entirely up for grabs again. Yeah. And, and that is an uncertain place to be for us. And it's definitely an uncertain place to be for, you know, the, 18 to 22 year olds that make up the bulk of our classrooms. Right. And I think that you hinted at this, what you just said there, that this is perhaps something that always was there. And there's a, there's yeah. a, a profound notion of all of these things that are happening. were kind of always there. The Trump era has magnified them, has kind of forced us to confront them yeah. in a way that we would have maybe been able or very likely been able to ignore, for instance, if Hillary Clinton had won. And so, you know, I can't, I can't state anything as a silver lining of, of what's happening, but there's, you know, I should be maybe I should be forced to be uncertain and I should be forced yeah. to rethink what I'm doing in the classroom, what I'm saying to students, what I'm assuming about students. That is something we should have to interrogate. So, again, not a positive or silver lining, but something, a takeaway, perhaps, that we should be all, all be thinking about. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes some pierced illusions are not a 
terrible thing, mm-hmm. um, but a difficult thing. Well, and especially for, uh, you know, again, teachers like the first uh, person in that segment, um, you know, how you can deal with that situation, I have no idea. And maybe yeah. that's where, you know, sh- you mentioned the idea of community. We turn to each other. So we turn to our fellow teachers. We mm-hmm. ter- turn to our, you know, department chairs, our deans, our students. You know, we turn and have a conversation about trying to understand how we, we confront and deal with some of these situations. Right. And we're clearly... Um, we have folks teaching and working with colleagues and working with students in radically different environments. Yeah, and that's one thing, speaking of going forward and, and more segments we want to do, we want to do more segments where we're pairing up people in different perspectives yes. or asking people to to talk about what their particular situation is at their particular type of school, whatever you know teaching situation they have. So um, if again, if you have ideas for that, people you'd like to hear from um, and, and pairings you'd like to hear, comparing perspectives, uh, let us know. We'll see what we can set up. Yes. On a slightly lighter, um, more uh, kind of pragmatic note, teaching the history of, of uh, regulation has never been so lively. Oh, my goodness. Man, those cla- they're barn burners. <laughs> they're like yeah. media ownership charts. Yeah, I want to see those. I know. What, when did those rules change? Yeah, and, and especially the stuff now, social media regulation, like yeah. should that happen? And, and in order to understand that, you have to understand, well, why is broadcasting regulated? And mm-hmm. the questions students are asking, and especially because they're so much more steeped in digital culture than I am in my everyday life, and I'm much more steeped in the old school traditional life. Mm-hmm. Legacy models, they can bring up questions and make points in in ways that kind of think through things that I that I haven't thought of before. And that's speaking of that uncertainty notion. That's really fun when you have yeah. students who are coming at you with ways of thinking or or ways of interacting with the media that you haven't experienced. Um, and especially in terms of questions, I love the questions they come up with because they're not necessarily ones I would anticipate. Right. Um, and yeah, who knew policy could be this fun in class? Yep. I've had some really, really pretty great discussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff. All right. We should live in interesting times. Oh, right? I know. Interesting. At least we've got that going mm-hmm. for us. Never a dull moment. Never never not something in the news to talk about. All right. So now we're going to uh, uh, take a, a chance to revisit the SCMS Oral History Project, which has generated so many fantastic interviews. And we're going to... Uh, Take this as an opportunity to to dip into one of those and share a bit. Yeah, if you haven't visited the Field Notes website uh, lately, please do. We'll, of course, direct you there um, from our website, aca-media.org. There you go. Oh, I almost said calm. I saved it. Um, so we'll link to that because they've done, uh, and there were a bunch more even at this SCMS and earlier in the year, so a whole bunch of new ones. Um, we wanted to, to bring up the one um, that Hamid Nafisi did, which I think actually ties in tangentially, but I think in interesting ways with the notion of thinking about Trump times, of course, because he um, studies Iranian cinema. He himself came over here from Iran. Um, he talks about that a little bit in the interview, and I think there's some really profound um, thinking through to do of that, of what um, you know, especially what might be the implications of some of the things Trump is introducing going forward when we we might in the future not have uh, Hamid Nafisi come to America because of some of those policies. Yes. Yes. Um, so just real quick, if you don't know who Hamid Nafisi is, he is a professor in communication at Northwestern University and a leading authority in cultural studies of diaspora, exile, and post-colonial cinemas and media. Um, he also studies Iranian Middle Eastern cinemas and media. Uh, he has published nearly a dozen books, including the four-volume set, A Social History of Iranian Cinema from Duke University Press, and he got his PhD from UCLA. He is interviewed here by Kaveh Askari, an associate professor in the Department of English at Michigan State. 
State. He is the author of Making Movies Into Art, Picture Craft from the Magic Lantern to Early Hollywood, BFI 2014. And he's currently working on a book titled Relaying Cinema in Mid-Century Iran, Prestige Cinema and the Archive of Hollywood. Um, and one quick note here, you're going to get the opening 15 minutes or so of their interview. Then in the middle, there will be a jump, and you're going to get jump to the final 15 minutes of the interview. Um, and the prompt question there, which you don't hear, Kaveh asks uh, Hamid about his move to Northwestern University in 2007. So when you hear whatever jump noise Todd puts in, um, that's jumping to that question through till the end. All right, let's give it a listen. Thanks so much uh, for donating your time to this oral history project. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I wanted to start uh, maybe a little bit earlier than mm. some uh, professional uh, biographies and talk a little bit about childhood experience because it's something that you've written about and, and something that um, a lot of scholars working in exile sort of braid into their work. Um, could you say a little bit about your experiences uh, <laughs> with cinema as a child in Isfahan? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I was born and raised uh, through high school in the city of Isfahan in Iran. And as a kid, uh, my first memories of uh, movie watching is going to the movies and to the theater with my dad. Um, Thief of Baghdad was one of the early ones I remember. Um, and uh, I also watched a number of films uh, in, in, in the 50s that were based on literature, like, you know, War and Peace and um, uh, Les Miserables and so forth. So, and I had read their novels before. So in, in this case, one medium uh, sort of fed the other, uh, led me to the other medium. And it, it kind of, um, I think, one of the early intersection of the two media or intertextuality for me happened there as a kid. I had read the novels, I would go to see the movies. Then I had a, uh, the, the, a neighbor of ours gave me a, <clears throat> give me, give me a 35 millimeter camera. And so I took this camera with me to see the movies. And sometimes I remember clearly taking, trying to take pictures of Audrey Hepburn from in, in War and Peace. And I was holding the camera like this, holding my breath, making sure that I would, my hand wouldn't shake and I could take a picture. A slide, and uh, so th that's that's how I, I, from early on, um, uh, had a fairly multimedia relationship with with film. Just to answer your your question a little bit more, the role of uh, foreign cultural societies was very important in my childhood. Uh, the, the Soviets had their own cultural society in Isfahan, the, the British had, the British Council uh, not only showed films and so forth, but they also taught languages uh, extensively. The America, the Iran-America Society was also very active, had a big library, uh, taught classes, they also showed films. And then interestingly, when I was in elementary school, the United States Information Agency, USIA, um, began to train Iranians in, 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 in making documentaries, and they brought a whole new phenomenon of film screening in Iran, which was um, showing uh, films via mobile film units. These were jeeps 
that uh, had a driver. The driver was not only a driver, but also the projectionist. Uh, he would carry uh, 16 millimeter uh, Bell and Howell uh, projectors uh, with a screen with him. And he would come to our school uh, every, Friday, every uh, Thursday afternoon, the day before uh, the, 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 the weekend. And he would set up his uh, screen in our library and uh, show USIA films. All uh, USIA films or all, other kinds of films? All or? USIA okay. films only, yeah. And he would travel from that school to villages and towns nearby and show the films and, and so forth. The thing that's uh, remarkable uh, for me was that I have a, a notebook that contains 16 film reviews mm -hmm. uh, that I had written uh, of the USIA films. Now, I don't think that was based on my own initiative. I think that was a requirement by a, an enlightened teacher. Um, so that's another aspect of film viewing which and film reviewing and criticism and so forth that was embedded into my experience from, from uh, early on. So there are kind of two uh, different uh, dimensions to the, the film going that you were talking about. One is this kind of institutional USIA uh, dimension, educational film, and the other is, is um, sort of commercial film going. Um, were there sort of overlaps between those two worlds? I mean, you know, in terms of film fans or, or was that something unique to your particular educational experience? I think that was, um, I mean, anybody who was going to that school, to that elementary school, and by the way, that elementary school also was built with funding from the USIA in Iran. And, okay. it, and it was a modern uh, school. It had an, a library that was open stacks library, which was very unusual. Almost all libraries in those days, even uh, city libraries and so public libraries were uh, closed stack. So you had to go and ask for a book and somebody would fetch it for you. Mm -hmm. In this library, students would just browse and find the books that they wanted to read. And, and so it, it, I think it was unusual uh, there. Um, um, there was a... Uh, a film club uh, that had just opened up uh, uh, and it, they would generally rent uh, a commercial cinema and show films uh, Friday mornings when nobody else would go to see movies. And I attended that film club, um, film screenings. There were very few people, like 10 or 12 people in a huge cinema watching some art house film, mm. mostly foreign uh, stuff. Um, but that was... That was basically, I also tried when I was a kid to build a film projector and failed uh, yeah. as a miserable. I tried to build a uh, ham radio and I failed. Uh, so it was a, um, uh, I still remember the regrets and sense of frustration, uh, but that's how it goes. So um, the film club, was that happening right around the time you were thinking about going abroad to study or? A little bit before, yeah. Okay. Just, yeah, just uh, I think a couple of years uh, or so before, yeah. So what were you watching at the time when you were contemplating studying abroad? Um, I, the films that I remember are, were these uh, literature-based films mm -hmm. that I mentioned. Um, seven Brides for Seven Brothers or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, uh, and, and, and which was not based on any literature that I had read. But uh, I particularly looked for films that were based on literature because family, uh, reading was a big thing in my family and all the kids, uh, uncles and cousins and so forth, had actually pulled together a library, a children's library, which at the end uh, had 5,000 volumes. Uh, 
of books, all children's books, which was an incredible treasure. So we did a lot of reading and writing and, 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 and so forth. And then they supported your, your desire to go abroad and, and you went to England first, is that right? I went, yeah, I went for a year to, to the UK and, 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 and my dad actually had gone to, he was a well-known physician, uh, but for his heart specialization, he went to Harvard and he also brought back with him a present for me, which was one of those uh, uh, view, view master slide ma uh, viewers uh, with the disc uh, and you click on it. And, you know, so I actually, for the first time through the agency of my dad became Americanized, not only by watching American films before, but through the, these slides of national parks and so forth, I began to sort of imagine myself there. Um, so there, there were multi, multiple strands that uh, sort of turned me towards uh, media, in particular film, and also toward the U.S. as a, mm -hmm. as a site for uh, education and college. And how, how was that experience in the U.S.? To the U.S.? Yeah, I came to the U.S. in 1964 to, to go to school at USC, University of Southern California. My intention was to major in dentistry. The first year I took, uh, I had to take science courses and, and so forth, uh, pre-dental courses, but uh, organic chemistry did me in basically. Uh, I think I got 40 uh, there, that was terrible. Uh, so I said to myself, I'm gonna take a course in this department of telecommunication. And if I like that course, I'll change my major. Uh, it just so happened that I took a course from uh, Edward Borgers, who was an old, massive guy, voluble, who had us analyze, uh, you know, classic television dramas like uh, Playhouse 90 uh, stuff, as well as uh, TV commercials. I remember analyzing for the first time uh, a, a Marlboro cigarette commercial. I'd never seen anybody assign, you know, 60 minutes, 60 second commercial for analysis, but that kind of textual analysis um, uh, of the Marlboro Man, because remember, in those days, the filtered cigarettes were actually more regarded as, as female cigarettes. So for the first time, they were trying to uh, reassign the filter to the men. And so the He-Man, the, the, the rugged um, uh, cowboy, type uh, who was smoking a filtered cigarette was uh, a new phenomenon. Anyway, so that really attracted me tremendously. And so I, I, I switched to telecommunication, which in today's parlance means radio television. Mm -hmm. USC had a separate school of cinema. Um, telecommunication was in, a, in, 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 in another school. So we didn't have a lot of contact with cinema. My first uh, early education of BA education was mostly radio television with a smattering of courses that I took in the cinema uh, department. I remember George, George Lucas was a year ahead of me uh, as, as a student. I was undergrad and he was, I think, grad then or the end of um, um, his BA. Uh, but I took you know, I participated in a lot of uh, activities in the, in, the, in the telecom department. We had the KUSC FM radio. And so we, I, I was a sound effect man for a, a whole series of uh, drama, uh, radio dramas. 
Then I had my own show. I had my own half hour a week show called Non-Western Music. I played uh, Indian music, African music, Persian, Arab, uh, Asian music of various sorts. Interspersed with, the, with these musical numbers, I would read from Scientific American, the latest discoveries in science. This was a completely idiosyncratic uh, format that fed my own interest, but nobody told me not to do it, and nobody told me to do it. It was a, an interesting experimental place where, you know, I continued my combination of production and studies. And those links between production and studies that happen here were important to your decision as well? Or? Yeah, because I teach, uh, the, 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 when I teach my graduate courses, uh, graduate students in film production, in documentary production, oftentimes take it. And mm -hmm. so they get exposed to things that they maybe would not have, would not get exposed to normally. And I also get exposed to their work uh, you know, I've, I've taught documentary film MFA students, and some of them have done their their films on the basis of accented cinema, of course, for example. So it, it's fascinating to see how they interpret the, uh, or or a documentary. I teach a documentary ethnographic film course, which they have also taken, and they apply some of the things they learn in in the studies course in their work, and it's it's really nice to see. Uh, how, what they take, the take what the takeaway is for them in, in, in their work. And of course, this is, this is where I think my own production experience also is helpful because I can talk in their language uh, and point to the filmmaking techniques in terms of budgeting, in terms of style, the styles of filming, in terms of how the group dynamic works, uh, uh, in terms of uh, shooting arrangements and so forth. I can talk, I think, with certain authority to filmmakers who take my classes that uh, average film studies person may not, who doesn't have the background in film production. Mm. And this was also an important move um, in terms of finally finishing up this project that you've been working on for essentially your entire professional yeah. life. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the four-volume book on mm -hmm. the social history of Iranian cinema. Yeah, I mean, that was a... With every article that I wrote and published on Iranian cinema or talk that I gave, I... With every visit to an archive, uh, and that's where they actually the Iran Media Index book comes in as well, because for that book, I went to a lot of archives. The whole project basically was to document from 1900 to 1981, uh, all the documentaries, newsreels, uh, news programs, television news programs that were made about Iran in the West, in the West, in, in the UK and US. For that, I went to so many different archives in the UK, the Kew Garden in the, in, in the UK, the National Film Archive, the Library of Congress, the National Film Archive here, um, lots of newsreel archives and, and, and so forth to produce this filmography. And that sort of um, made me aware of the enormity of material. So that became part of a chapter. Some of the findings from that book, from the, that archival research, was plugged into the social history of Iranian, Iranian cinema when I was writing about the history of documentary filmmaking by foreigners about Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, likewise, other cha other chapters, you know, uh, 
uh, were helped by the previous books, or, you know, the books, the three books I did on exile and diaspora cinema, um, s became the impetus for a major chapter in volume four of uh, about Iranian filmmakers in the diaspora and so forth. But it, it, it originally it was supposed to be a one volume book. When I signed contract with the, the Duke uh, University Press, it was for one volume. But after a few years of writing, I realized that it was not going to be one volume. So I talked to Ken Whisaker, who's the editorial director, and I said, I don't think this is going to be one. It may be two, it may be more. And this is where a good editor comes in. And he said, well, this is a life, lifetime work for you. And we know it's a very significant piece of work. You've done a lot of work, spent a lot of time, gone to a lot of archives, done a lot of interviews. So I'm willing to go and fundraise from my sources if you go and fundraise from your sources. So we did that. I was able to get funding from Rice's Dean of Humanities. When I came here, the Dean of Communication School, both of them were generous with funding. And so we both were able to raise enough fund to go from one volume to four volumes. Uh, so 3,000 and some pages uh, in manuscript form. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just want to recognize the, the creativity and insight of uh, foresight of, uh, of Ken uh, mm -hmm. to, to go out of his way to do this. And my deans for, you know, um, funding and it seems to follow um uh, you know the a kind of pattern that that um, is coming up throughout the, our discussion about compilation you know and going back all the way to your third grade journal entries that you still have uh, maybe in this office or yeah um and and thinking about this kind of uh compilation and collection as as part of the part of the process and to then truncate yeah. that and force it into a, a single volume would would counter that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I have an archival um, tendency, and I actually, for my PhD, one of my three areas was archiving. And I studied under Bob Rosen, who was the head of the UCLA archive and so forth. So yeah, that's... Uh, um, uh, and, and then for the four volume, the chief uh, challenge really was to maintain a singular argument throughout the four volumes. Um, uh, and that was basically the idea that cinema brought modernity and modernization to Iran. Modernity in, in terms of identification structure, in terms of subjectivity and the psycho psychological and ideological dimension of things but also modernization in, in the sense of the mode of production, the mass production of uh, films for mass audiences um, and, and uh, genre formation and, you know, various other uh, things that come with modernization with uh, increased number of production and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And in building an argument that runs through all 3,000 pages that takes 40 years or 30-some yeah. years to, to create, yeah. there are massive transformations in the field along the way. Can you, can you say something about the way you adapted the project to the, the, the way the field changed, both in cinema media studies, but also Iranian studies? Yeah, I mean, it, that, that, as I was writing and doing the research, uh, Iranian studies came to its own in the, in, in the US at any rate. 
uh, until the eight, until the nineties, really. Iranian studies uh, circles focused on the, you know the the history, politics, uh, anthropology, social sociology, and if they dealt with the arts, the arts were traditional arts. Um, uh, uh, paintings, sakhakhone uh, uh, paintings, or uh, poetry and literature, and those sort of things. The modern media were not really within the purview. Uh, so that was one of the changes that occurred, that was occurring in Iranian studies, was that modern media and pop culture gradually became acceptable topics. In film uh, studies, you had the beginning, as I was mentioning earlier, the sort of the turn to theory that really revitalized academia in various fields, including in cinema. Um, um, and I was at the right time, in the right place at UCLA, where a lot of these, you know, the, the, the Derrida, Leotard, Habermas, all of these guys were coming to give talks or to, to, to teach courses. And I was there, uh, so, and I have sketches of all these people, because in all these, uh, lectures that I went, uh, attended, I also sketched the individuals. So I have thousands of sketches of these guys uh, with a little blurb as to what they said. Uh, <clears throat> so that was my note taking. Uh, so that, uh, I sort of, it was a kind of an inquisitive baby, constantly absorbing both Iranian studies fields and also film studies uh, and critical theory that was evolving. And I incorporate them, I think, uh, promiscuously, perhaps. Uh, um, but I, uh, I hope that I have done it seamlessly enough and creatively enough to make a coherent argument and not be pedantic or doctrinaire or whatever. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm also thinking of shifts, you know, to say non-theatrical media, which you have experience producing as well as writing about, um, sort of links between television and uh, film. You know, that's there's a way in which um, I think a lot of sort of studies of world cinema, television is kind of disavowed, and its its influence is sort of disavowed. And and you make very, uh, you make a very careful point to talk about even. With the advent of the new wave in Iran, um, that these sort of in intersections between national Iranian radio television, national Iranian um, radio television corporation, and all these other multimedia outlets are are all sort of feeding into this. It's not just a cinema-specific movement. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's partly because I'm how shall, how shall I say it's kind of intersectional. I'm interested in the interdimensions of. I actually wrote a, a preface to a special issue of Journal. Uh, about the inter-trans and inter-trans and cross uh, uh, elements. Uh, I've always been interested in connections, how things connect to each other. And so that's, that's where that comes from. And, and I think that's also part of that autobiographical element. If you sort of listen to your own um, and look at your own self and your own interests, you may discover that something new is there. But if you constantly try to follow the trends, then you won't discover anything new. Um, this, the, the, the real, I think, newness is when you turn inward and inside and you discover something there. And you 
recently the book was translated into Persian? Yeah, the first volume was translated. The first volume. Yeah, and, and won a, the Best Translation Award. Um, uh, I, I don't think the other volumes will be translated because it's so takes so long and the money, the money reward for the translator and perhaps for the publisher is not enough to invest. You need to have, like what uh, the Duke did, the Iranian publishers also need to raise funds, especially to do something like this because it's such a big project and I'm too far away to want to be able to muster any campaign on my own and I don't think it will happen. And um, do you do you have a sense of how the book was received in Iranian within the field of Iranian studies? Maybe among scholars writing in Persian, um, versus I film studies. I or? think it did pretty well. Um, you know, there was a recent documentary that was made about me, um, uh, uh, mouth harp in minor key, Hamid uh, Nafisi in and on exile. Uh, this was uh, just a couple of weeks ago shown at the premier documentary film festival in Tehran, the Cinema Verite Film Festival. Uh, and apparently it did very well. People were sitting on the floors. Uh, it was so overcrowded. They scheduled new, new sessions for, for the film and so forth. So people had somehow, through the publication of that book, uh, the, the translation of the first volume of the social history of Iranian cinema, but also through other translations of my work in article forms, have heard enough about me to suddenly come and see this documentary about this guy who lives abroad. Um, um, and a, a whole bunch of reviews are beginning to come out about, uh, or interviews with the filmmaker, Mariam Sepehri and so forth. So we'll, I think it has had some impact. Um, and given the kind of national hostility between the two, my two countries, the U.S. and Iran, um, and which also affects travel, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration bans travel of Iranians to here. Iranians' government uh, labels Iranian binationals as spies and so forth. So. Anytime you go there, you, are, you fear that your research will be taken as spying and so forth. And so it's a, it's a very tough field to work in, but such is my fate. <laughs>Okay, very good stuff there. Again, especially to me, very profound uh, material about Iranian culture, American culture, academic culture, and all the exchanges that can happen therein, um, and that frankly are endangered, you know, given our current situation. Yeah, absolutely endangered, and it's so easy to be so ignorant, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it's such a remarkable body of work that, that he's talking about in a remarkable culture, and, and just so invisible in mm -hmm. so much of our... Um, larger 
official political sphere. Mm -hmm. And I think even in our academic sphere, we mm -hmm. tend to silo ourselves. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I haven't read his his four volume set on Iranian cinema and hearing his interview, I really regret that. And I feel like I would be a better scholar in general. You know, even though I mostly teach TV, I think I would be a better TV scholar. It actually just came up in my um, my media industries class. One of the students, we, we, we talk about what's in the in the trades. I call it news banter. And one student brought up the, the news story that Saudi Arabia now is going to open its you know, AMC theaters right. is opening um, theaters in Saudi Arabia. Black Panther is going to play there. And so I started speaking. The only context I really have is Iranian cinema and the wave of new, you know, new Iranian cinema. And there Oscar was Oscar Farhadi. Yeah, and exactly. And there like were, yeah. you know, the students were wondering, like, okay, will this lead to a flowering of Saudi Arabian cinema? And, and certainly that's a possibility. But also, I brought up how much you know Iranian cinema, the kind of art movies that we see aren't made for Iranian people. They're right. made to win Oscars and and especially to distribute internationally to say like you know, appreciate our culture and. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very complex uh, situation there. And so these kind of topics that come up, I really wish I was more uh, well-read on a lot of these topics that don't seem in my wheelhouse, but that's what we have to do. Again, as teachers, uncertainty, you never know what's going to come up. The more we can read, even outside of our wheelhouse, uh, the better off we'll be. It's good to find new questions, mm -hmm. you know, and, and new opportunities and new material to explore. And we are going to, again, going forward, we, we promise, I know we keep saying this, but we promise we'll, we'll get on more of a regular track here and try to bring you a wider range of content so you too can uh, reference unexpected topics that might come up in your classrooms. And in the meantime, best of luck with uh, wrapping up the semester for those of you who are teaching on a semester system, for those of you on a quarter system who are looking uh, down a longer path of, of teaching work, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a teacher. Our hearts are with you. And good luck with that snow on Monday. Yeah. Oh, Michael. yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> It'll be great. Well, I know. I'm picturing like I'm picturing like Patrice Petro and um, Michael Curtin in Santa Barbara just kind of <laughs> rolling their eyes. Right. Jen Holt is over there laughing at us. Oh, oh, uh, oh. And then we can also think of, uh, let's see, who do we know in, in Minnesota? They're getting like a foot of snow this weekend in Minnesota. So sorry, those of you at University of Minnesota, St. Cloud State University, all of those places, Carleton College. Good luck to you all. We're thinking of you. Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we are also very grateful to SCMS for providing us a grant to keep doing what we're doing. We couldn't do this work without an entire team who is behind us and with us. Um, and they, literally standing by us in a picture that we took at SMS. Yes, indeed. So. Yes, indeed. Uh, Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois. Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester. And then, of course, the golden years of Todd Thompson. Uh, down in Austin, Texas, at the University of Texas. And thank you so much to those uh, four folks who submitted segments for the Trump Times. We really genuinely appreciate the time you took to uh, submit those for us and also the courage it took for you to, to share your stories with our listeners. I think that's a conversation that is not a one-off conversation, but an ongoing one. So yeah. um, we'll look forward to, to keeping that conversation going. Yeah, we will revisit that. And thank you, of course, as always, to the whole Field Notes team, Heidi Wall awesome and uh, really great content there. Go check out the Field Notes website if you haven't been there in a while. Lots of good stuff to listen to. All right. Happy spring. I think that was a question mark. I hope. Happy spring. Happy spring.